You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. From CFUV 101.9 FM, I'm your host, Maureen Chow. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm here today with Brett. Brett, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Tell me what you do here at UVic. So I am a PhD student at the University of Victoria's School of Earth and Ocean Sciences. I'm studying marine microbial ecology, which is basically the study of microorganisms in marine ecosystems and how they interact with each other and how they interact with and influence their environment. And what are some of the things that you look at on a day-to-day basis? Or what are some projects that you've been working on? Um, so I've, I've got a couple things on the go now. The first was some research that was actually happening close to home here in Victoria. There was a big project that we were completing on Saanich Inlet. I was working in, in that sort of ecosystem for a little while. And then I just recently returned from a expedition to a series of Pacific seamounts or seamounts in Canada's western Pacific Ocean. Uh, with a bunch of partners, including the Haida Nation, uh, Ocean Networks Canada, uh, Oceana Canada, as well as um, Ocean Exploration Trust. Did you do that on a boat, or what was kind of the physical process? Yeah, so we were on board the Nautilus for 16 days. We departed from Victoria a few weeks ago and uh, started the trek out west and then up north. What was a day in the life? Oh, so we would get up typically around six in the morning the ROVs so the robot that we send down to do all of the exploring down there in the deep would enter the water at about seven o'clock a.m. so we'd be up and rolling by that about that time there is uh, typically a bit of shift work that happens there so we take turns in the control van where we are uh, mic'd up and interacting with the ROV pilots who are driving the equipment down there, who are responsible for taking samples and for navigating, and we're sort of in constant communication with them, uh, asking them to take samples where we, where we feel like we want to take them, and, and that kind of thing. And how does one prepare for such a trip? Oh, <laughs> with great difficulty. It, it took me a while. So this was my first major research expedition, so it took me a while to to get things down most of it was just kind of packing and repacking checking checking the list making sure that you have everything that you need for laboratory experiments for processing the samples once they come on board because once you're out there there's nothing you can do if you've left something behind did you leave anything behind I didn't this time (laughs) no I did have an experience a little while ago where I forgot to renew my passport which (laughs) ended up ended up causing a bit of troubles but no no everything went fairly smoothly for for this expedition it was a really good experience so i imagine before you go on the trip you probably have a hypothesis or like a large scale plan yes for what you want to find yes absolutely so what i was looking for i was on the hunt for mud down there sediment on these sort of sloped seamounts that protrude up over 100 meters from the seafloor at times and, and at times coming fairly close to the surface even though you're way out in in uh, you know off coast or offshore waters so I was on the hunt for some mud and and basically what I'm looking for there is is how the microbial community is distributed 
along an oxygen gradient as you go deeper into the sediment. So uh, my focus is particularly on the nitrogen cycle, so I'm looking for microbes that are, um, that are utilizing different nitrogen compounds, uh, specifically ones that will create uh, nitrous oxide as a, as a metabolic um, byproduct, which is actually a fairly potent greenhouse gas. So I'm kind of looking into what organisms are responsible for this, uh, for this particular metabolic pathway and what genes are being expressed that lead to it. And what did you find? Were you happy with the results? Uh, so unfortunately on this expedition we ran into a shortage of mud, which I wasn't exactly expecting. So I, I wasn't able to run the experiments that I wanted to in the shipboard lab. I, I was able to um, sort of get a, a series of samples that I ended up, you know, subsampling. So I, I'll be able to look at the, the microbes as they're distributed with depth in the sediment, and maybe maybe formulate some new hypotheses based on those data. But unfortunately, yeah, um, bad luck with the experiments on this expedition. Does that mean you'll have to go out and collect more? Or I imagine there must be some budget limits. With I hope so. Like It'd be a good <laughs> excuse to get back out on the water again. But um, I think hopefully next summer we will have a sort of an expedition that's that's more catered towards our specific objectives going out to the western continental slope off of Vancouver Island here so that's uh, yet to be determined but hopefully we can we can work something out for next summer so what were some of the findings anyways i know you had the shortage but leading up to that or now looking back yeah so i mean i can speak on behalf of the group we we ended up mapping 13 subsurface seamounts uh, we visually surveyed six of them and collected over 170 biological samples, including deep water corals, sponges, sea stars, urchins, all of it. What exactly are seamounts? So seamounts are typically uh, subsurface volcanoes, uh, extinct usually or dormant, that have, have been formed and, and rise up off the seafloor at least a thousand meters. So that's kind of the benchmark to be called a seamount is that you're above the thousand meter mark. And so we're talking about you know, subsurface mountains that are as big or if not bigger than Mount Baker. Or, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and so where exactly do you go on this trip? Like it must be planned out so specifically, I'm sure. But does it often follow that route or is there a chance that you might detour or what happens yeah actually we you're, you're right there, there's there's a, a lot of specific planning that goes into it you have an itinerary that's drafted up that you you are intending to follow but when you're out at sea things don't always go according to plan so uh, we about the halfway mark out there we had a, an explosion in one of the engine cylinders which sort of knocked one of the pistons loose and and made us stationary for I think at least 24 hours but the ship crew out there was unbelievable they managed to fix us up and get us running in I think just over 24 hours and so we were we were back on track fairly quickly but we lost a day of diving there um, some days you are you know adapting based on sea state conditions so we wanted to get a little bit further south to explore one of the seamounts that we had planned to but um, weather wasn't very favorable for us. There was kind of high seas and a lot of swell out there, so we had to kind of reroute and check out another seamount. So, I mean, as as much as you like to plan things out, it uh, yeah, it often doesn't go according to plan. And who's on deck? 
So it's actually quite a large operation. So you'll have you'll have ships crew that are responsible for the equipment, getting it in the water and getting it out of the water. And then uh, while the equipment is in the water, so while the ROV is down there, we were running 12-hour operations a day, but you can you can run them longer. Uh, while while the equipment's in the water, you have the ship's crew in the bridge who's responsible for navigating the boat and for moving it along with the ROV as it cruises along the ocean floor. And uh, in the in the control van, you'll have a team of ROV pilots, people that are responsible for uh, for controlling the equipment down there, and then a board of scientists in the back who are sort of watching the live feed as it goes along and asking for samples and that kind of thing. Um, navigators, this cruise had a fairly large communications component to it as well, so there was communications fellows that were interacting with the public, answering questions on the live feed. It was, yeah, really expe- really special experience. And you mentioned diving. Are you a diver? I am, yes. Yeah. And how much of that went into this trip or collecting what you needed? Absolutely zero. The locations that we were sampling and surveying are just, they're just too deep for conventional scuba methods. Right. So yeah, the, it's, yeah, it's too far. The pressure's too high. It's too cold. And so that's why we rely on these submersibles that are sort of piloted from the shipboard or from on deck and that uh, you can kind of minimize the risk to having, sending people down. Hmm. When you enter into the PhD, do you go in with like a very firm idea of what you want out of it or do you kind of decide as you go? Yeah, so when when I was looking for PhD programs, when I was put in contact with my supervisor, he has uh, or, or had a project or a mandate with the Canadian Healthy Oceans Network. So, I mean, some of it is sort of ob- obligations that come along with a lot of the research funding. And then within that, I've been super lucky that I get to sort of develop my own questions and, and, and search for avenues within the broader umbrella that I can sort of uh, yeah, sort of follow follow the road where it leads type of thing. And which step on the staircase are you at right now in terms of this PhD? Uh, I'm f- I'm fairly fairly low on the bottom. I've had a couple couple hiccups. I'm hoping to start some experiments in the fall here. So since I wasn't able to do what I wanted to on board the Nautilus, I will just take it to some nearshore ecosystems. So I'll I'll do some sampling, likely in Sanichin, later Patricia Bay, and then hopefully get some experiments up off the ground here in the next couple weeks. Victoria seems like a pretty ideal place for you to do all of this, being on the island. No, it's awesome. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's perfect. Coming from the prairies and and sort of the ocean being sort of this this thing off in the distance that I was always trying to get to over and over again, it's nice to be in one spot near it all the time. On the coast. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about what you're doing right now, but if we backtrack what is your history in academia? So I did my Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology at Dalhousie University in Halifax. So I graduated from there in 2016. Following that, I was hired at the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences, where I wore a couple hats. I was hired as a, a lab instructor for their invertebrate zoology course. So they run fall courses for students that are in their undergrad in various schools in the States. So uh, I helped teach that class, and then I also served as a research assistant in their resident microbial ecology lab. And so I was doing a uh, help with a research project on the side there as well. And that's where I actually was um, put in contact with my current supervisor, which, which brings me to UVic. What was it like being in Bermuda? 
Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I won't complain. Coming from the, the, the minus 40 in the prairies, I, yeah. Fair enough. I would have taken a few more weeks if I could. No, it's it's really good. The, the Marine Institute there, the Research Institute, is phenomenal. Tons of amazing scientists and great people to work with. And uh, just just the life there in general, the reef, uh, the island itself is just a beautiful place to be. How do the waters compare to being here? Is it the same sort of research or can it really vary? So uh, my, my first term in Bermuda, I guess I'll backtrack a bit, I did a research internship there when I was in my undergrad and I was researching the impact of ocean acidification on corals and their physiology. So I started in, in the area of coral reefs. My second term in Bermuda, I made the switch over to microbial ecology where I was looking at um, microbial communities in areas that go seasonally hypoxic, so they, they get depleted in oxygen during the summer typically and then and then renewed in the fall as storms kick up the water and mix everything around. So I was looking at how what the succession was like as as seasons change. What made you decide to give that up for you, Vic? <laughs> I know this seems pretty great as well, but I'm sure it doesn't quite compare it to Bermuda. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, the research station there was was great, but I always wanted to pursue grad school. And so, studies, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I had a colleague in Bermuda who's now on my supervisory committee, and he put me in contact with my with my current supervisor, and I just heard nothing but amazing things. And so I, I spoke with him a few times, and we talked about the research project and what the aims would be. And uh, yeah, that's when I decided to to pull trigger. And how is the program at UVic? What are some of your favorite aspects of it? Um, it's it's really good. So the one of my favorite sort of parts of the first year of grad school is everyone was required to take sort of this uh, this course frontiers in earth and ocean sciences which was a seminar course uh, it ran once a week and we would just bring in various faculty members who would give presentations on their work and what they're interested in and it really sort of broadened the scope for me I mean I w- I've always been sort of focused on biological aspects relating to marine science and it was really cool just being immersed in all other aspects from chemical oceanography to physical oceanography yeah, geology that kind of thing so that was a, a really cool experience for sure how did it change your outlook on what you do? It just, it, it, like I said, it broadens, broadens the scope and it makes you see sort of the, the bigger picture that nothing really acts in isolation. So I might be, you know, focusing on these super tiny microbes that we can't even see with the naked eye, but they just, they exert such a massive influence on the globe and the climate and nutrient cycling and and all of that. And what's the ratio between being out there and doing external research and then time spent in the lab or writing reports? Oh, I would say at best for me, I get sort of like a couple weeks uh, in the summer where where I can sort of be heavy on the field work and, and stuff like that. After that, lots of the processing for, for microbial ecology work happens in the lab and so once you've gathered your samples and you've run your experiments then there's a whole suite of tests and procedures that you go through through in the lab so that will take up inevitably a large chunk and then a large portion of my time is just spent bent reading this is a fairly new new field for me and so I find I spend a large majority of my time reading papers reading textbooks and uh, yeah trying to trying to get a handle on what it is I'm doing here. <laughs> Fair enough and at the end of this is there a thesis? Is there 
like a major project? I guess yeah. you don't totally know what yours is yet, but I know you will. So yeah, I have a, I have a general idea of what I want to or what the, what the overarching theme of of the thesis will be. So yeah, it is a thesis based degree, and so by the end of this, I will have to submit a thesis to uh, for review with my committee, and then and then eventually defend it as they tear me apart with questions <laughs> much like this i'm sure yeah <laughs> no of course not what are some of the things that you might look at okay can i give a little background yeah, here? of course okay so so my my work is is centered around areas uh in the ocean of low oxygen or so we call them oxygen minimum zones and they're sort of natural features of the water column for the most part and what happens is organic matter that's produced in in the surface waters by photosynthesis will start to sink out and it starts to decompose in an area that's separated from where oxygen is produced by photosynthesis and so you sort of get this this intermediate of of water that's that's fairly low in oxygen and in shallower waters it can actually come in contact with the bottom and if possible microbes much like you or I will will choose to use oxygen <laughs> for their for their metabolism <laughs> for their metabolic processes when that's not available for them they will switch to using other chemical compounds that aren't as energetically favorable but that will that will still allow them to get the job done and so the first thing that happens is they start using uh, what we call fixed nitrogen compounds, and these are sort of nutrients that plants require to, you know, marine photosynthesizers require to to grow and to produce food. And so most of my work is focused on what happens when oxygen is removed and they start utilizing these alternative compounds. Specifically with the with the nitrogen cycle, there you you get nitrous oxygen or sorry nitrous oxide as as a byproduct with a lot of these metabolic pathways, which I think I mentioned before is a fairly potent greenhouse gas, some 300 times more potent than CO2. And uh, it's actually a, a fairly strong ozone depleting agent. So um, can eat away at the ozone layer in the stratosphere. What are some of the short and long-term effects of that? Long-term effects are a little bit harder to, to of gauge. Yeah. <laughs> Can't predict the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of in terms of short-term effects, depending on where the nitrous oxide is being produced, if it's sort of if it's deep in the ocean, it's sort of spatially separated from the atmosphere. If you're getting nitrous oxide produced in you know in estuaries, whether it because of eutrophication or the, the addition of of nutrients to coastal waters by agricultural practices, when that stuff is when those processes are closer to the atmosphere, you'll get you'll get the ocean being a net producer of nitrous oxide. So then you're just increasing the um, the concentration of, of another greenhouse gas essentially in the atmosphere. So in terms of, um, in terms of short-term consequences, the, you're increasing the, the, the concentration of nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. Going long-term, if, if, if that continues, it, it's just another radiative force. So you'll, you'll accelerate global warming a little bit kind of major yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so that's that's and it's kind of up to debate or up for debate as to you know how much how much we should worry about about nitrous oxide as a greenhouse gas and in, in terms of what's being produced by by microbes so my work uh, hopefully my idea is to is to sort of dive into uh, what organisms are responsible for producing this what genes they need to produce uh, to produce this as a byproduct, uh, how active they are in uh, under different oxygen concentrations, 
in your opinion, should we be worried? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll reserve the gloom and doom for now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think we have, I think we have enough to worry about with, with our, with our, uh, carbon emissions that we can, yeah, we'll wait until we, what, what, some more science turns up with respect to nitrous oxide, but it's, it's always good to, to keep an eye on these things. In an ideal world, what are some of the main things you hope to find or accomplish with this research? Yeah, so that, that's a super good question. Um, so with, within the field of microbial ecology, there's a sort of a disconnect or a lack of understanding with how, um, how genes and their expression correlate to the actual rates of what's happening. So, you know, how much N2O is being produced per unit volume and that kind of thing. So my hope is to be able to, to draw some of those links between, you know, how many, how many organisms within a specific group are present, to what degree their genes are being expressed, and, and how that relates to the actual hard and fast rates of nitrous oxide production and, and the utilization of these various nutrients in the marine ecosystem. Is this something that will fit into the timeline of your PhD, or could it potentially be something that lingers as new information comes in? Oh, I I mean, eventually I'm going to have to wrap it up and do a cohesive <laughs> PhD thesis. Yeah, I've never been too good at foresight, but I, I hope that I can, uh, I hope that I can you know, pull something together over the next four years that sort of that sort of tells a story and that starts to fill in these gaps. I, I don't think I don't think the question will ever be completely answered within a within a, a four or five year PhD thesis. Like anything. Really. Like anything. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and four years of school is a lot. You've already done four. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what made you decide graduate studies was for you? I mean, it sounds like you have a lot to talk about and a lot that you want to do in terms of ambitions but it's still committal yeah absolutely I didn't, I'm not sure if I fully understood what I was getting myself oh. into in the first <laughs> part but I mean I <laughs> I I just thoroughly love being involved in academia I love I love the learning process feel I feel at home at a university institution I love interacting with people in various research fields um yeah, I love I love making colleagues and and you know feeding off of their enthusiasm and and building on their accomplishments. I think it's just yeah, it's it's I guess the best way that we have to accumulate knowledge in the world and I just I want to be a part of it. Do you think this is a field where it's easy to consult peers, instructors about what you're doing or can it become quite individualized? I haven't noticed it if it is uh, individualized. I, I w I've got an awesome lab collective who I can run to with questions all the time. Uh, my supervisor makes himself readily available. I've had good discussions with faculty outside of my lab who are in uh, various different research fields. Yeah, it's been, from what I can tell, it's, it's an awesome community and a great place to learn. How much does school become your whole life. <laughs> I mean, you're not quite at thesis zone yet. I've had interviewees say like, what life? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How does that compare with what you're doing? At yeah, the so I find so far it's it kind of it kind of comes in waves. So I'll go through stretches where yeah, it's it's basically everything that I'm doing and takes up the majority of my energy outside of, of cooking meals. But um, <laughs> sleeping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I expect that to maybe come on a little heavier in the future. 
Yeah, day-to-day life right now isn't too bad. I, I try to treat it like a full-time job. So I'll, I'll, I'll do typically, you know, eight, eight hours of work during the day and then, and then try to do some personal things out, outside of that. Not think about it in the yeah. remaining hours. Try to stay in shape, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However futile that attempt is. Yeah. In terms of the school part of it, do you TA or are there lab things that you do outside of your own work? Yeah, so last year I was a lab instructor for EOS 110, which is just the intro earth and ocean sciences class. And this year I will be doing TAing EOS 311, which is biological oceanography. I'm super excited for that because that's just sort of a little bit more in my wheelhouse. But I, yeah, I really enjoy teaching and, and I've been doing it since since I got my first TA job in my undergrad. And so I'll definitely continue doing that throughout. Do you think that teaching is a potential career path, maybe teaching at a university institution or what's kind of the what do you want to be when you grow up <laughs> oh that's the, that's the question i i want to stay in research I, and, and it would be awesome if teaching could be a component of that yeah it's it's a cool experience like especially when you when you get to teach people that are fairly new to university and they're coming in and they're learning all these things and to like sort of see the light bulb go on in certain situations or circumstances and you can see yeah, that that spark of interest just start up and it's a cool experience to be a part of. So yeah, I would like to keep teaching moving forward. I think the idea right now is to, yeah, to work on my research skills and my skills as a scientist and then and then go from there. When was your spark of interest? Oh, I, well, I've, I've had a couple. So my my interest in the oceans started on a on a family trip down south. We went on a cruise for a grandparents anniversary and and every time we stopped in port, I just wanted to snorkel the whole time, just the whole time. <laughs> right. and I'd be like dragging my uncle into the water with me and spending hours out there. And that's where I first got super into the ocean. And so after, after high school, I spent some time in Australia. I did some diving on the barrier reef there. And that's kind of when I decided that, okay, like this is, this is something that I really want to do. And then after that, I had, I had a few professors at Dalhousie that were just the best educators that I'd ever come in contact with and sort of I guess the final push towards academia was just seeing how enthusiastic these people are about their research and about science in general and about communicating it to the next generation of students. Do you think like now I'm sure this is concrete this is it? Yeah 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 yeah, absolutely yeah I've come too far now. Of course yeah. yeah. Are there usually any like slight transitions between in terms of fields within fields do you see yourself diverting what you're doing now or do you think it will mostly stay in the stream oh that's a good question I wouldn't I wouldn't mind going back to back to corals at some point and and I think it would be super cool to kind of take take some of the stuff that I'm learning from the field of microbial ecology and apply it to sort of the reef ecosystem that these these organisms these microbes are in constant feedback with with everything with each other with other organisms in the ecosystem and they're so vitally important and i think i think there's still a lot of unexplored avenues on coral reefs but relating to to what the microbes are doing in their function in that ecosystem so i wouldn't mind kind of blending the two at some point there is a bit of a stereotype with people in stem that people are reserved or they're quiet or they keep to themselves which you clearly don't seem to be (laughs) uh is there a lot of presenting that goes along with what you do and how much do you want to put what you do in the public eye per se 
Yeah, there's 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 definitely a lot of presenting that goes that goes along with it and I mean like anything public speaking is is something that that I personally have to work on and and practice. And so it's great. I I enjoy doing stuff like this. I think especially public outreach is is super important for people in STEM fields. Uh, I just think that having having a well-informed and educated public is is so key for just informing effective policy and 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 pushing forward with initiatives that we care about. Yeah, my goal is to is sort of to to work on this and and to get better at at communicating and and being interactive with with the general public. What advice would you give to someone who is considering doing what you're doing? Oh, like marine biology in general? I guess or so. Just, yeah. It, yeah. I just mean find 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 an area that you have a passion for and that you're interested in and and go for it go to classes sit at the front row raise your hand <laughs> ask questions be that person absolutely 100 percent. be that person go to your professor's office hours volunteer to work in a lab all of those things are just are just yeah you'll thank yourself later uh, for for doing that and what is the most rewarding part of what you do oh that's a tough question i guess the, the most rewarding part is just is just contributing to an ever-expanding knowledge base to you know looking back at, at how far science has come in such a short time frame the coolest part is just like throwing your pebble in in you know that sort of yeah <laughs> it's that too vast hard of, not to make metaphors yeah, that relate to what you're doing yeah exactly yeah. I mean, however however small the contrib- contribution might be it steps forward and it's and it's progress and i think that's probably the coolest part i i really enjoy yeah interacting with people too i like it's super rewarding talking to people who have been around the industry for a really long time and yeah and seeing you know people that are maybe on the way out of their scientific career but still so enthusiastic and so so passionate about about what they're doing so I think that's yeah well it sounds like you have a lot of scientific career ahead of you so <laughs> yeah, I hope so yeah, <laughs> one would hope fingers yes. across. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming in Brett all right thank you for having me it's been a pleasure For interviewee contact information, or to listen to this episode again, go to podcasts at cfuv.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Jargon.